0: Tonight I'd like to speak about the five spiritual faculties. The five spiritual faculties. Some years ago I was doing some personal practice in Burma with my teacher Seda Upandita, my main teacher, and I entered the interview room to give my report. Before I took my position, and I was walking slowly into the room, he posed a question to me. He said, what is equanimity? What is equanimity? So I took my place and completed my three bows to him, and I gave a short response about equanimity being a state of mind that is spacious, that is balanced, and that's filled with loving-kindness. And... He answered in his usual way, giving his usual kind of approval, which is, hmm, (laughs) he isn't very, um, uh, he doesn't talk very much, (laughs) let's say. So he gave his answer. He said, equanimity is like a chariot being pulled by five horses. In the lead is mindful awareness, and behind them, the first pair of horses are faith and wisdom, and the second pair of horses are concentration and energy. And when faith and wisdom are in balance, and concentration and energy are in balance, the lead horse, awareness, has little work. Little work. So it's more effortless when we have that kind of balance. So I'd like to speak about those qualities this evening so that you can recognize them in your own practice and see for yourself where is the the weak part, where is the strong part. So this talk tonight is about those five cardinal virtues, the five spiritual faculties Not necessarily about equanimity, but equanimity is also developed because of that balance between all of them. Each one of these powers are mindful, uh, are activated by mindfulness and strengthened by mindfulness, and they become stronger as there's more momentum in our practice. So what happens is they tend to coordinate or corral the potential of the other energies inherent within the mind stream. Manindra used to say, he used to give very simple examples sometimes, and somebody asked me if I would give some examples of raising my children. So one of the things that he, he did, I remember, I used to when he used to visit us, I used to take him to the beach on Maui, and the children would play. And I had uh, three children at that time, expecting another one. And he said to me, "Um, You know, Kamala, you are the mother. You are like mindfulness. You are like awareness. And when awareness is there, all the good qualities come around, just like all your good children come around you when you're mindful, when you're aware. So mindfulness, he said, attracts all the other beautiful qualities of mind. And in fact, when one beautiful quality of mind is present, all the other beautiful qualities of mind have kind of a resonance towards the same kind of family. So they come closer to you. So when we corral or coordinate these tendencies, the other supportive energies come nearby. They're in harmony, they're in balance, they're essentially uh, the cause and condition of a lot of our happiness and peace in our lives, momentary or long-term. The Buddha points out that he does not bestow this upon us, but they are already deep tendencies which we need to develop. It's, we wish, right, that we could meet a teacher and he would just put mm-hmm. his hands on our forehead and then everything would be all right. But it isn't like that. We, Like Manindra said to me uh, a few times, the Buddha solved his problem. You have to solve yours. And so this empowers me, actually. It doesn't weaken me, but it empowers me to really uh, put the best I can, all the energy, all the good, um, wholesome qualities of mind, like Upandita said, you must be able to invest everything you have in the practice. So these are already deep tendencies of the mind, waiting to be nourished, waiting to be kind of brought out and grow and bear fruit. I'm going to take a moment to fix this. It keeps wanting to go down by itself. Okay. Door. more. Okay. Thank you. So we nurture their growth just like in the afternoons we do our loving-kindness practice, inclining the mind there over and over again so that the habit pattern or the pathways in our mind are very clearly there for the energy to fall into and, and be energized and uh, wake us up or support us in our lives. We will naturally know how to keep them in balance We naturally know sometimes when we need to bring a little more softening to the mind or maybe a little more vigor to the practice by sustained energy is what I mean by vigor. So when they're in balance, they're transformed from the five spiritual faculties to the five spiritual powers. They're the same thing, except that Five spiritual powers are uh, transformed from the faculties because they're constantly being given energy. So I want to read something to you from Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's an American uh, Theravadan Buddhist monk. He was ordained and lived in Sri Lanka for a long time, edited and authored many publications of the Buddhist teachings, and he's greatly revered in our circles. He says, Left to itself without the guidance of a superior source of instruction, the mind is prey to forces that swell up from within itself, dark forces which hold us in subjection and prevent us from attaining our own highest welfare and genuine good. These forces are the defilements sometimes we hear them said like that in the Pali term, hindrances. As long as we live and act under their dominion, we are not our own masters, but passive pawns, driven by our blind desires into courses of conduct that promise fulfillment, but in the end, lead only to misery and bondage. True freedom necessarily involves the attainment of inner autonomy, The strength to withstand the pushes and pulls of our appetites. And this is accomplished precisely by the development of the five spiritual faculties. Well, he doesn't pull any punches, does he? He really tells you like it is. And we should be, and I am, very grateful for that kind of teacher. Because he's not trying to make everything nicey-nice for me so that I always have a smile on my face. but it's more like the opening to how it is rather than how I think it should be or what suits me, what's more pleasant for me. So each of these faculties performs their own function and naturally reestablishes balance and strength to the others. So let's look at one factor at a time and how one is a cause and condition for the other one to arise and then to see them in pairs again. When we have faith, as I spoke about last night, it brings about confidence to be able to actually put our energy, which is the second balancing factor, to put our energy into a path of practice. Because if we didn't have faith, we wouldn't do that. We would uh, just go have a martini, as somebody said today. (laughs) That was really nice. <laughs> that was really kind of nice <laughs> not that i would do that but that that person was so truthful so faith brings about energy energy brings about mindful awareness because that relaxed sustained energy that we keep putting in the practice and as uh, alexis pointed out it needs to be just a light touch it's not this big oomph that we put in our practice but just a very light touch is all we need he gave an example the other evening of what it takes to just shift the mind to being aware and most of us could experience that is that's not a lot of energy that's just little a little energy many times over and over again and sometimes we may forget and then all of a sudden remember again to be mindful and we really haven't lost too many beats. You know, it really just connects with the last moment, and we're on track again. So energy kindles mindful awareness, and the continuity of awareness on changing experiences, on changing objects, produces strong concentration, which gathers momentum. So it's not the kind of concentration that you put on one object like in samatha or concentration practice or you put it just on the breath or in other traditions like on a mantra or um, looking at a light or a candle. That's a kind of practice where you put it on one object. But this kind of concentration is developed because there's sustained Relaxed energy on changing objects, one after another, after another, after another, produces very, very strong concentration. So this kind of uh, sustained momentum in a relaxed way, which is concentration, enables this stability of mind. The mind Even when the objects are changing one after another, the awareness um, and the concentration coming together and being on the changing objects produces a great stability of mind. And we feel that right at this time there's a lot of mindfulness, awareness that becomes effortless during this time. It also makes uh, that kind of uh, observing mind or the mindful awareness mind becomes like a magnifying glass so that each moment is seen very, very clearly without the filters of greed, hatred, or or delusion. So it becomes really strong, really clear at that time. It's said that during that time, uh, the, the terminology is that it pierces through the illusion of solidity and permanence, because it begins to see that it's not all as solid as we think. We uh, Alexis and I were taking a walk just after the Metta practice, and he pointed out these great ant hills. I'm sure you've seen them, you know, along careful around them, and. Um, it looked from afar, you know, that it was just a solid mass, kind of almost like a rock, a brown rock. But when you came closer, you could see that every, it was totally moving. Everything, all the ants were moving around, even the pieces in it were moving around. And that's what happens when there is, are all these factors coming together, including concentration on changing objects, you will see how everything is moving when the mind magnifies it and there's a very close observation of what's happening. So it pierces through the illusion of permanence or solidity. really begins to see that clearly. And the wrong view of an eternalized self begins to see every component part of this self, uh, what we call this um, sense of self, come up. All the component parts are seen in kind of their discrete moments sensations of the body perceptions that come up uh, feelings of pleasant, unpleasant and neutral that come up intentions that arise uh, knowing itself all of these come up in discrete moments when the mind is observing very clearly and it begins to see each one of those moments also as moving not solid, and not permanent. They arise, they change, and they pass away. Every single one of them. Some of them are, you know, pretty um, subtle. They're subtle to see some of the, the activity of some of them. But as the mind gets stronger, as the observing mind gets stronger, there's the ability to see that. So there's this deepening understanding of the the wrong view of some eternalized self. There is a sense of self that operates in the world, but not this eternalized self. No core, nothing connected to anything else that makes something solid. For some people it's kind of scary, and for some people it's a great relief to see it this way. So this, of course, is the deepening of wisdom, all of this begins to really open to <clears throat> the noble the four noble truths the noble truth of suffering there is the truth of suffering this is the first noble truth it's wrongly articulated sometimes as life is suffering but i mean what a way to attract people to a path that <laughs> it isn't that at all it's it's the, the way it is truly articulated is dukkha-saccha. Dukkha is suffering. Sacha is truth. There is the truth of suffering. It exists. And why does it exist? When you look at impermanence, you see that everything's coming together, falling apart, moment by moment. Um, we still exist as a sense of self, and there's still good things in the world. Don't get that scared about it. But we, we begin to see they can't hold on to anything. Any kind of happiness that we have, it, it, it comes, but it also goes. Maybe another moment of it arises, and that stays, and then it falls away. And we have these moments of wonderful experiences, and they, they don't last. So can't hold on. That's one way of understanding this dukkha. There are other ways, but I'll just give that one example. So the truth begins to see the truth of dukkha, the truth of suffering. This is one of the things that, this ability for these uh, qualities to start getting stronger, faith, energy, concentration. And this, of course, leads to the deepening of wisdom all of these things that I just imparted to you, the understanding of impermanence, the understanding of no eternalized self, the understanding of dukkha, these are all deepening truths that we come to, open to. And then when these are experienced it leads us to even more faith because they're experienced. It's not that we read them in a book. And Actually, it gives a great relief to the mind when we see this truly. Some people, you know, are a little bit um, inclined to kind of push this understanding away. But when the mind really takes it in and lives in alignment with that truth, there's a great relief to the mind. Sometimes there's I've noticed in my own practice when there's ability to actually see dukkha and not be afraid of it or not be averse to it or resistant to it, there's a delight that arises in the mind. It's, the delight is because there's the ability to see clearly. It's not because dukkha is there, but when there is awareness there, it's the awareness that the mind is more settled in. So that a delight arises to be able to see, ah, this is the truth. This is how it is. And then the mind, awareness, and wisdom can know that truth. So the cycle continues because it leads to greater faith. We start to see the truth and live in alignment with it. And all of the other qualities become more connected and balanced with one another. Faith and wisdom come together we're not just having blind faith, but there's a clear seeing in that wisdom part. We're not just having all this energy that's producing nothing but, uh, but restlessness in the body or mind. It's producing this strong concentration and on changing objects, and it really makes the mindfulness and awareness more powerful. So the lead horse has little work when faith and wisdom... Concentration and energy are balance. Last night, um, I spoke about faith and I saved some of it to fill out a bit more because it's actually a, a longer uh, talk. So I put some of it in this talk. Um, I mentioned one evening that uh, when last practicing with Utejani, which was just last month, I in my interview with him, I remarked that of the five faculties, which he talks about a lot, he, he brings out their their essence and what they mean to us in our practice. He brings that out a lot in his teachings. And I said, of the five faculties, faith is the one that I noticed most these days in myself. It's like the energies working on faith there's been a lot of faith in my practice in my life but it seems like it's it's going to another level right now so sometimes I I feel a lack of it when actually it's just shifting into another gear um, I don't feel I'm up to the up you know to be able to withstand sometimes what life um, I'm what kind of conditions in life I'm faced with, but it's just actually, I feel, the strength of faith deepening because of those conditions. So he said that um, he had never put words to this before. I remember he he was talking to me and he was tying, retying his robes. And he said, oh, I never thought of this before. I never said this before. And um, But I, I have seen that when one of those qualities gets stronger or is working towards getting stronger, the other ones have to reach the same level. So it was really encouraging for me that all of the others were rising up to meet that particular um, shifting of faith for me because it said that, Along the way, we do need greater faith faith in ourselves in order to navigate what we need to navigate in our lives, in our spiritual lives sometimes. And so that gave me a lot of inspiration that, oh, I'm doing the right thing, you know. And um, of course from him, because he has such a powerful practice and a powerful incisive mind, I really took that in uh, very clearly. And um, in a way, it, it empowered me to, to continue on the path. Of course I would, but, you know, it helps to have a blessing like that. So faith provides inspiration so that we can have the intention to aspire to something greater than what we have previously experienced. So it really helped me have the intention to go forth, to take the next path of practice, whatever that would be for me. It plants the seeds of confidence that it's possible to be liberated from habit patterns within me that just are so sometimes so deeply rooted that, um, and I know they're subtle sometimes, but you can see the propensity for them to arise and come up so easily. And they look so big, even though they're so small sometimes. So it plants that confidence that they can be uprooted instead of their being able to push and pull us around in our lives. It steers the mind away from doubt because doubt is weakened by the presence of faith. Um, Manindra used to say where there is light it dispels the darkness if you bring a candle to the room it brings a little light to the room but if you bring a moon moonlight into the room it's a little brighter um, than on a full moon and if you bring sunlight into the room it's very very bright you can see a lot and it said that um, faith brings those qualities in, of, especially of mindful awareness. Mindful awareness is like the sunlight. It lights everything up so one can see very, very clearly the true nature of whatever there is to be seen. So I spoke last night about when doubt arises. When faith is there... You can check it out for yourselves. It's like the clear voice of faith arises with that doubt. And it says to oneself, when the doubt comes and says, you can't do this, or you're too lazy, or you're not making enough effort, or whatever it is, we can say or think or reflect without the words, but with the understanding, this is just a thought it's really just an empty thought. It's really just something that comes from the past and it's echoing against the walls of the mind. doesn't mean anything at all. And that can be seen very clearly and the doubt can be dispelled by that understanding of the empty thought. Or we might say, as I said last night, um how Manindra taught me to say, Oh, I see you, Mara. I see you, Mara. One time when I was practicing in Australia many years ago, um, about 30 years ago now, I I had a a dear friend who was kind of a mentor to me and um, kind of a girlfriend to me too. And, oh, she bugged the hell out of me she was she was really on that retreat. It was really like she was the you know in the in meta you have the benefactor and the dear friend, the neutral person and the <coughs> enemy, <laughs> and she was the benefactor and the enemy together. It was like there would be really wonderful things and there there would be awful things on how she would scold me sometimes, or she was much older than me, so. Um, her voice would come to me a lot in walking practice and in sitting practice, and then practiced enough with it so that the mind and awareness could see this just this voice starting to come. You know, this her voice coming to me saying what she says to me in kind of an argumentative tone, and then I would kind of answer back, and finally I said. I see you, Mara. And it was so strong; that sense was so strong in me that from that point on, I just saw that voice whittled down so small. And there was—it took no time at all. When a few days had gone by, a week had gone by, and I thought, I reflect, and I thought, I haven't heard her voice in a long time. And that—that that really worked for me. That I see you, Mara that Mara, the tempter or the temptress that's tempting us away from sitting on our seat or standing in our place and really understanding that I have a right to understand the depth of the truth of life. You're not going to tempt me. So faith can be stronger and the willingness to take the next step is there, all the time, when faith is there. Faith keeps an eye on the direction of our highest aspirations. It's like a a compass, and it points us there all the time. It's like you take the compass of faith out, and it says, this is the direction. Not looking at a goal, but a path that has a direction. And it reminds you that this is the direction that your highest values and your deepest intentions wants to go towards and say, okay, I'm going in that direction. There's a saying that the first step depends on the last, which means knowing your aspiration or your direction, and the last step depends on the first. So you have to take that step. So one depends on another But to have the aspiration to know what your values are and to go for them, that's really important. Because then we're not paralyzed when doubt comes. Doubt brings with it confusion, indecision of the mind. It also brings with us over-intellectualization. It tries to figure things out all the time. And it's just like tying oneself in a knot. Doesn't really get you anywhere. So, it can withstand the difficulties any path could present, is what many say about faith. It's like devotion. This um, I experience it is devotion to my practice. So, with everything I'm looking at, as this is my path, this is my practice all the things that happen in the outer conditions of life and all the ways the mind responds to it. These are the things that the mind looks at. And so this is the path, this is the what, what I have to work with. These conditions, outer conditions, inner conditions. There's nobody to blame. There's nobody at fault. There are just these conditions to see in discrete ways, one thing at a time. So, devotion to your practice. And a big devotion to my practice is to develop the wholesome qualities of mine. To really put that faith and energy and the concentration and um, patience also, all of these wonderful qualities, into developing loving kindness, into compassion, gratitude, generosity. Sometimes difficult a lot of difficult things happen to us on the path. And difficult people and people sometimes ask me, you still you you think of that person highly, you keep that person in your heart or those people in your heart. You know you've there's been a lot that's happened to you in your life. And and I really owe it a lot to the practice of metta, to practice seeing the good in people, no matter how they're expressing themselves at the moment, to be able to continue to see the good in them. But you see the, the other parts too, and you do what you can about um, keeping your boundaries. But you also see the goodness in people. And it keeps your heart open to all of life and to yourself as well. So de- devotion to developing those wholesome qualities of mind because then wisdom has a greater chance to develop. It's said that, you know, in the, in the path that the Buddha laid out in his teachings, he would present, um, in a way, dana, the practice of generosity, the practice of sila, which is non-harming, the practice of um, bhavana, which contains the cultivation of concentration and wisdom in that. He would present this path in a gradual way. And the first two factors, generosity and sila, which is non-harming, are wholesome qualities of mind. And when we develop those wholesome qualities of mind then we can easily sit down, the mind can easily concentrate, wisdom can easily develop from that foundation. And that's why when he put the path out, he started with generosity. He started with um, non-harming qualities of mind on which to build uh, the wisdom factor, which all of us have, these beautiful qualities of mind. So then defilements can be more courageously faced and uprooted when we have these wholesome qualities with which to face life within ourselves and all around us. So Manindra used to say to me that when we have devotion, it also lessens our pride because we we have devotion to our path then we know that everything around us, we, we can have teachings. Everything around us is giving teachings. And we can learn from every side. He used to say that phrase a lot. We can learn from every side. So we have the willingness to try for ourselves and then let the wisdom develop from that, from trying ourselves. So that's the quality of faith. Um, Now, the other factor is energy. Faith brings a confidence and trust to put forth energy in the practice because we realize with faith that this path is worthy of our efforts. We choose a path that we have confidence in, of course. And we know that this path is worthy of our efforts, so we put our energy there. It said that it kindles the fire of interest. And it gives more value to whatever we do with that energy. This kind of energy is um, gentle, persevering effort. was one step at a time, one moment at a time. Mental energy as well as physical energy... It's not this big umfing energy that people, or this really serious kind of energy that we put into the practice. It's a very kind of open and light touch. This very light touch. So, some people um, have told me that they consider patience a kind of energy. When they look at it in themselves, it's a kind of energy that you that is not rushing towards something, but a kind of energy that can go slow and stand still when you need to be still with something. That can wait instead of grabbing towards results. I mean, this is a kind of energy that we all have, and patience um, is like. They say that it's the highest, one of the highest valued things on a spiritual path: patience. With with patience, we can get to the end of the path. Is often a phrase I hear. There's a story about the Buddha, when someone asked him how he got through all the difficult, strong currents of the river of life. And um, he was asked, "How, dear sir, did you cross the flood, the flood of life?" And the Buddha answered, "By not halting, friend, and by not straining, I cross the flood. But how is it, dear sir, that by not halting and not straining, you cross the flood?" When I came to a standstill friend, I then sank. But when I struggled, I got swept away. In this way, friend, that by not halting and not straining, I crossed the flood. So it's that persevering, not fighting the waves that come. Sometimes having to go with the current. Not struggling. Not straining. Not stopping because we give up on ourselves. Maybe we stop because we need a little more patience, we need to stand still for a while, but not because we give up on ourselves. Utejaniya would say that this is not a hundred yard dash, it's a marathon. It takes this, like some Zen masters say, a long, enduring mind to do this kind of practice. But by having that length of time to do it it's not kind of an overnight you know, quick enlightenment thing we really learn to enjoy our lives and be better human beings on the path so keeping the thread of awareness electrified by the continuity of this gentle persevering effort that's faith and energy Two of the spiritual faculties, they're both wholesome qualities of mind. And because of that energy, it kindles the fire of uh, awareness, of mindful awareness. The third faculty. The other evening, I, I used the word sati. Sati is the Pali word that means mindful awareness. It means a fullness, a mind that's full of energy and all of these factors that come together, faith, concentration, energy, uh, and wisdom. And it feeds into uh, mindful awareness and it becomes stronger. Sati means mindful awareness, but it also means remembering. Remembering. So it's not remembering the past or the future. But if there is remembering of the past or the future, there's the knowing of that. There's nothing wrong with remembering the past or the future. It's just knowing that it's happening. When there is knowing that it's happening, one is in the present moment. Knowing that the past is being remembered, the future is being thought of in this present moment. So that's okay. But remembering to be present is the true connotation of this word remembering in sati. Remembering to be with the present moment's experience. Remembering to be aware. Remembering to be aware. Nowadays when I use the word remember, a little reminder to myself, remember, it's like Remember to be aware. Or I might just use the word awareness. And just the mind has a pathway there already, so it goes there more easily. So it's this carefulness, not a carelessness. It's this carefulness of mind, being very, very careful to be present. It's the antidote to mindless negligence. So it's able to see the truth of experience and not clouded by anything else. When mindful awareness is really powerful, it's not accompanied by greed or hatred or delusion. It's really very, very powerfully clear. So it can reflect clearly what comes into its reflection. Sometimes it's called bare attention because it, the, that attention can see things bare of greed, hatred, and delusion. That's one way of understanding that uh, bare attention. In a collection of the words of the Buddha um, called the Dhammapada, these are the precious words of the Buddha. It says, the foolish and the ignorant give themselves over to negligence, whereas the wise treasure mindful awareness as a precious jewel. So, negligence is when not paying attention, not giving attention. Negligence is the mind that just, um, be- because of awareness, it just goes anywhere out of habit and believes everything that comes in the mind, not really seeing a lot of the thoughts as empty echoes. When someone has a quality of awareness about them, one would say, this is a very aware person. And one, no matter what their outer appearance is like, one would say, this person has a beautiful mind. You get the sense that that person has a quality that participates in life's events, really participates, but is mindfully aware at the same time. It's not just being quiet and kind of like a robot of like noting this and noting that and, you know, in breath, out breath, and hearing and all of that, but it's really being alive in life, really alive in life. Because one is really connected to all of life, and sees not just the surface of what's going on, but sees deeply behind uh, the illusion of solidity and permanence, the illusion of, um, you know, a solid sense of self, the illusion of that something somewhere is going to give us eternal happiness. And kind of lives in that um, view that brings a lot of problems, brings a lot of suffering. So you get a sense that this person participates in life's events and recognizes them at the same time. It's not distant from all of that. There is this kind of participatory awareness in life, it's a middle ground between being absorbed or indulged or identified with what's going on. That's one side. And the other side is being blinded by it. One is being caught in it. One doesn't even know it's happening. It's totally ignoring it. So it allows this very full feeling with recognition. And there is a balance there. So... Much more can be said about mindful awareness, but just suffice it um, to be that for now. Because that's what we're practicing here. And every day you're getting a bit of it from your own understanding, your own experience. So we have faith and energy, mindful awareness. And the fourth faculty is concentration. And Utejani called... Nia calls this stability of mind. That's what it feels like in the body and in the mind. Of course, it starts in the mind. It feels like this tremendous stability. And there's the ability to be with whatever comes up and not be pushed around by it. It provides... um, this stability when there is perpetual flux in the mind and all around us. It can hold the beam of steady attention on discrete experiences coming one after another, just momentarily, 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 momentarily. And it has this flexibility to it. Flexibility is another quality, but it can come with this kind of concentration, it's called momentary concentration but on changing objects one after another it really provides that very deep kind of stability so this kind of concentration gathers and unifies the energy and channels it to wisdom to the wisdom factor which then can unfold and reveal what it reveals. Awareness, people think that, oh, because I'm aware there is wisdom, but that's not necessarily so. All these factors have to be developed for wisdom to then arise. So that brings us to the fifth faculty of wisdom. Uh, This is the purpose of the practice to develop wisdom because Awareness is the kind of like the work of the mind, the working, the very precious and important workhorse of the mind, so to say. But wisdom is the purpose of the practice. And because of awareness, wisdom can arise. Both of them are needed. All of these are needed. So there's in this wisdom, there's a deepening understanding, of why it's important to live in harmony. Something very simple. Why it's important to be, be attentive to the laws of cause and effect that understands that uh, unwholesome thoughts, actions, and words bring unpleasant results. Wholesome thoughts, actions, and words bring pleasant results. So wisdom brings this deepening understanding that paying attention to the laws of cause and effect are kind of like baseline. And this comes as like a a big boom in us. Yeah, we knew that, but when we have more awareness and more wisdom, we know it in a way that we turn our minds to really paying attention to what our thoughts are, what our words are and what our actions are that so we don't want to harm anybody or anything through that i remember when i had my first long retreat and at the end of the retreat Seda upandita asked me what have you learned what is what is the most important thing you're coming away with and in that retreat there were there was a lot of blissful moments and many hours that the mind could just be with all of that but that wasn't important what was important was what I said to Sayadao G. was that it's really much more important to me to watch my thinking to watch my words and to watch my actions that they be more and more free from greed, hatred and delusion so being much more careful about cause and effect or karma. And that was what came out of that, to be much, much more careful with my life. It didn't matter all the blissful moments. It's that what mattered the most. And this is what wisdom is based on. Because when our actions and words and our thoughts are in alignment with non-harming the truth can more readily be known. Just give you one example. Um, in, speak, in speaking, Upandita actually he requires us to not only be truthful, but be precise in what we say. And so um, in that particular retreat, There were people who were reporting in the beginning, I was in a group interview, and they were reporting that they could stay with the breath for long periods of time, that there were no unwholesome mind states or defilements that came up. And he was, I could tell he was rather skeptical about that, you know, since we just started the retreat. And so it came my time to say something, and I thought, well, Seyedal, I'm sleepy. There's a lot of sleepiness and restlessness in the mind. And... You just told the truth. And at, at the end, at, in the evening, he gave a Dharma talk. And he said, uh, this is what happened in this, this today's interview. And I want every single one of you who didn't tell me precisely the truth to come to my door and to tell me that you didn't tell me the truth. And to tell me the truth of what really happened in your practice and to be precise about it, because how can you know the truth if you can't speak the truth? And so it became really important to me to speak precisely also, because I wanted to see precisely what's going on in the mind. So it's, you know, for those reasons too, it's just so important to be clear, to be non-harming, in our actions. So that's a very basic wisdom. And then there are many other wisdoms that arise in the mind uh, when all of these factors become strong. And some of the the, the more mm, refined ones to see and sometimes difficult is seeing the truth of impermanence. Seeing the truth of the impersonal nature of life. Seeing, really seeing the truth experientially that, you know, there, there is happiness in, in our lives in this world, but it doesn't, you know, moments of happiness don't last. And it gives us the understanding what am I trying to cling to? You know, experience this as it comes, and when it goes, it goes and live in alignment with that. And your mind will have more calmness, more kind of a sense that we're living in alignment with how things really are, instead of how we think things should be. So, Seyadao Utejaniya says, Wisdom inclines towards the good, but is not attached to it. It shies away from what is not good, but has no aversion to it. Wisdom recognizes the difference between skillful and unskillful and clearly uh, and clearly stays away from the unskillful. So there's all kinds of levels of wisdom one understands through this practice and more that um, Alexis and, and I will speak about during the course of this retreat. But we can, when we consider these five spiritual faculties and pairs, again going back to the beginning, we see that faith and wisdom can be in balance. We're not having this kind of blind faith in ourselves, in the practice, in the teacher's we understand with wisdom why we value um, the path we walk on, the teachings that we get, why we value our own energy, our own ability to be on the path. So faith and wisdom are balance. And we have a capacity in faith to have devotion for our practice. We have a capacity in wisdom for clear comprehension and understanding to come out of that. And then we have the pairs, the pair of energy and concentration, and the balance of those together, where there can be an active giving of the energy towards uh, the practice. And then concentration streamlines that energy towards wisdom, towards the development of wisdom. So all of the above make mindful awareness more powerful. And as each one becomes powerful, the others, as Butesha pointed out, come up to par with that one that's growing in their strength, in their power. So it brings every single one of them up. So balance is essential on our journey and it's important to be aware of what's going on with us in terms of all of these factors and to see them when they arise or when we notice them there moment of wisdom a moment of uh, moments of concentration when we feel there's a lot of stability of mind when the faith is there to continue Maybe it disappeared and all of a sudden reappeared. All of those factors that I spoke about. One of my earlier teachers, Ayakema, a German woman who, after raising a son, became a nun and gave a lot of wonderful teachings, she said, One finds oneself a more harmonious and balanced person with less difficulties Capable of helping others. To develop these five faculties should be a primary object in one's life. The balancing of them needs to be seen as connecting the heart with the mind. So I'd like to end with the words of the Buddha. Just as among all heartwood fragrances, that of the red sandalwood is deemed the best. This was in his time, of course. So, monks, among states that partake of enlightenment, the faculty of wisdom is deemed the best, namely for the purpose of enlightenment. Which monks are the states partaking of enlightenment? The faculty of faith is a state partaking of enlightenment, and leads to enlightenment, the faculty of vigor or energy, the faculty of mindful awareness, the faculty of concentration. The faculty of wisdom is a state partaking of enlightenment and leads to it. And among them, the faculty of wisdom is deemed the best, namely for the purpose of enlightenment. From the Samyutta Nikaya. So, on those words, let's take a moment, some moments, to be quiet. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.